know, there is a lot going on beyond uh, the impeachment inquiries that that have uh, begun. And I think that, you know, people need to know that and they also need to in- contribute their story, their their concern, their their pain that they've absorbed because of climate change. As I'm recording this, the House Intelligence Committee is hosting yet another day of public impeachment proceedings. As the inquiry and the 2020 election dominate the news cycle, many Americans may be wondering if any policymaking is getting done on Capitol Hill. Well, when it comes to tackling climate change, Democratic lawmakers are making a strong attempt at taking some real action. In this episode, we conduct an exclusive in-depth interview with Representative Paul Tonko of New York on the details of a brand new House bill to create a 100% clean economy by 2050. Plus, we get his thoughts on extending clean energy tax credits and what he makes of the Republican stance on climate policy. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Hello, I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'm here with Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And Shane Skelton's here with us in person. It's been a little while. You're uh, welcome. You're yeah, welcome. thanks for gracing us with your presence. He is our Republican, a partner at S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. Speaking of the Department of Energy, uh, Secretary Chu called me the other day. He wanted to give me his thoughts on the 2020 race and the impeachment hearings. And I said to him, uh, I may have like screwed up several times as your chief of staff, but at least I didn't get you involved in an impeachment hearing. <laughs> so what were his, hold on, you just buried the lead. What is? What are his Job thoughts well on, done, on the 2020 field? That might be off the record. <laughs> well, we're going to turn to our interview with Congressman Tonko in just a moment, but speaking of the 2020 race, Brandon, I know you went to the California Democratic Convention last weekend, so I wanted to get a read on that. Uh, what were your thoughts and takeaways? It was really great to be there. So, um, they have all these like caucus meetings uh, within the party. And so R.L. Miller, who was a guest on our show, she runs the California Democratic Party Environmental Caucus. And so they invite the candidates uh, to speak before the caucus. And if the candidates can't be there, uh, they can send a surrogate. And, and so, to be clear, I think Warren and Biden were not there. They were the only two candidates to not attend the California Democratic Party convention. Uh, so I uh, went and spoke on behalf uh, of, of Elizabeth Warren to the Environmental Caucus. And it was really great. There was you know, several hundred people in the room, uh, a lot of enthusiasm. I told the Warren campaign they could send their California team uh, over to Nevada because I delivered California. I think it's over. <laughs> we wrapped it up here. <laughs> you you uh, delivered like, it. Saved those. So, yeah, I delivered California. California send their resources going, They were going to Trump Nevada. and then Hurlbut stepped <laughs> That's in. That's right. My two-minute speech, you know, just ended the, you know, delivered California. What did you say? Uh, um, talked about some of, you know, her uh, climate plans. Talked about the movement building. Inslee's climate plans? Of course. She's endorsed that. <laughs> she endorsed the Green New Deal. Uh, but it was really... Um, great to see uh, democracy in action. When I was working on campaigns, when you go to those events, you know, you're like running around, you have all these volunteers you're trying to organize, you're trying to get like all the merchandise and it can be a very stressful situation. So I've graduated, you know, from that job. And, you know, when, when you're in my role, you could show up and really appreciate seeing people um, 
take their democracy seriously and, and, and be activists. And so there is enormous enthusiasm there for many of the candidates. There's great showing for Bernie, Kamala, Buttigieg. And it was really cool to see everybody out there uh, taking this election so seriously, mobilizing, being involved, uh, because, you know, regardless of, you know, whether you're conservative like Shane or, um, you know, Democratic like me, you know, our democracy is something that requires people to be involved. And so uh, I just felt really good about being there and seeing all the enthusiasm. And California is really going to matter in this primary. So um, it was great to see huge turnout there. It's kind of weird because California matters in the Democratic primary, whereas it doesn't matter at all, obviously, in a general election because it, it's going to go Democrat. But it's got to be kind of fun. I was busy doing something awesome rather than going to the Democratic convention. Uh, so I think our listeners know we're partnered with the USC uh, Schwarzenegger Institute. And one of the things that they do, and one of the reasons this partnership works, is they convene stakeholders, liberals, conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, to try to find climate solutions in a nonpartisan or maybe even, yeah, I wouldn't say bipartisan, nonpartisan, bipartisan, whatever. Uh, so there was a cool roundtable that I got to participate in with lawmakers from state senators to state delegates to you know mayors and, and county supervisors or commissioners, uh, and even you know representative from the U.S. Department of Energy. And one of the things that I found was sort of a proof of concept of what we do. A couple of the ideas that came up and, you know, summarize the entire meeting. But, you know, there was one uh, uh, representative from a southern state who said, point blank, I don't believe in climate change. I don't think it's real and I don't care about it at all. But I really, really want to take advantage of the economic opportunity that's that's occurring in my state. And so I think it's just a good reminder that he was willing to travel to California to meet with people far more liberal than he is because he wants to provide economic opportunity for his constituents. And we have to remember when we talk about these things, there's no upside in making enemies and there's a lot of upside in finding common ground. So that was really helpful for me to be reminded. Another idea that came up, and I don't know if it will ever come to be, but I thought it was interesting is we talk about job retraining, right? So what are people in West Virginia, what are people in, in other parts of Appalachia going to do if coal jobs go away? And it's kind of condescending for politicians from Washington or even more so from California to tell them, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. We're going to get you a new job. But what's not condescending is doing something like a worker exchange where oil field workers from the Central Valley in California have already made that transition. They're getting paid more, their lungs hurt less, and they're living a healthier lifestyle they can actually communicate 20 years in the oil field to someone in the coal mines and say, look, I, I did this. Come come see my experience. Come check out my job. Come check out what I do and vice versa. That was an idea that I thought was really, really good because no one wants to be lectured by politicians who wear suits about what their job underground is like. But you can share experiences with other like-minded people and, and see sort of a path to a more lucrative and, and, and healthier lifestyle. Just to clarify, so the coal workers would then exchange with the oil field workers? So what you would do is you'd have the the uh, solar workers in California who used to be coal workers, sorry, used to be oil workers, the coal workers could come out and spend a week on the job with them and just learn about what Got they it. do, how they do it, how much they get paid, and what the transition was like. And and then, you know, yeah, you like could kind do, of in, yeah, worker to worker, similar concerns, I'm sure. Yeah, it just seems like it would be a far better way to, to educate people about some of the opportunities in front of them. It's not all despair than having someone show up in a suit from California and say, hey, we went solar. Why can't you West Virginians do this? Which, you know, is more condescending and, and disrespectful uh, rather than, hey, I used to do what you do and now I make 20 percent more. 
Yeah. I've, I've always had a bit of a gripe with the retraining word. It feels like you're in like doggy school or something. I feel like we, again, need like a more comprehensive plan, more nuanced solutions like that, where people can talk to one another and actually exchange real, you know, information and stories and figure out how to reorganize your life because it's people's lives we're talking about here. Well, and one of the things I hadn't thought of is one of the individuals there, not the same guy, had said, um, Another thing you have to be sensitive about and think about when you have these conversations is it's not just a job. It's a way of life. You're basically going to a place and telling them the way you live, your father lived, your grandfather lived for 100 years is no longer useful to our country and you need to go away. So you have to really think about how you talk about these things, thanking them for all that they did to build this industrial economy and looking forward into building a, a more advanced industrial economy. But that was really prescient because it I just never occurred to me that you're not just challenging their job. You're challenging their entire existence and their community, which is probably more meaningful than I've really let register in the past. Well, to give a shameless plug for a story I just wrote for Green Tech Media on the Navajo generating station that just closed in Arizona. Yeah, yeah did you read it? I did. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I spoke to a clean energy entrepreneur who is Navajo, Brett Isaac, and he talked about trying to develop clean energy projects on Navajo land to get them more recurring revenue and things like that. And he's like, look, coal served this community. There were like hundreds of jobs in the mines and working at the coal plants, and now they're basically gone. And there's tax revenue that comes from that that goes to schools. So how do we pitch clean energy in a similar way? Like that's the one good thing we can take away from the fossil fuel industry is that it integrated into these people's lives. And there was skepticism around going clean because it seemed like it would threaten their way of life and putting food on the table. And now he's saying increasingly the community understands that there's a transition taking place. The head of the Navajo Nation actually just denied backing some bonds for some coal facilities uh, in the north of the country, saying we need to move away from this resource. Uh, but he did say, you know, you have to build consensus and make clean energy as relevant to people as coal once was. Um, I wanted to go quickly back to Warren, Brandon, because we saw the New York Times report uh, on President Obama's remarks at a gathering of liberal donors where he talked about, uh, without mentioning any particular candidate, but basically referring to Warren and I think Bernie Sanders, where he said, quote, even as we push the envelope and we are bold in our vision, we also have to be rooted in reality. The average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it. So to wrap this section, what do you make of that? For all those who are listening, I love so much the look on Brandon's face right now. You can't see it, but you can probably feel it from that silence. <laughs> I love Barack Obama. Um, I spent nearly seven years, uh, literally blood, sweat, and tears uh, for him. Um, there's nobody more beloved in the Democratic Party uh, than Barack Obama. Uh, he's been incredibly successful. So whenever he uh, gives advice, we should welcome it because he won two presidential elections uh, and with an overwhelming you know, majority in the Electoral College. Uh, so I think it depends on what you mean by tear down the system, uh, because I'm not sure that some of the things that Elizabeth Warren is advocating for would, would tear down the system. I think what she's advocating for is building the system from the ground up and getting people universal health care. So is Obama getting her policies wrong or you're just not reading his comments to refer to her or? I don't know what if he was referring to her, um, but I, uh, I, you know, I also think that there are in this election, as we've talked about, there's definitely a a generation gap uh, on how people see this. And I think that 
you know, people in the president, President Obama's generation, uh, the amount of change that they want to see may be different than what young people want to see. Well, keep in mind, though, too, as you know, President Obama is younger than Elizabeth Warren, but also you said she doesn't want to tear it down. She just wants to build from the ground up. Typically, you know, if I buy a lot with a house on it, I got to tear it down before I build a new one from the ground up. There's, there's a little bit of nuance that I think got lost there. I wonder if you also... He could be saying uh, to maybe Warren, uh, you know, if you are the candidate, maybe moderate some of what you're doing. I wonder if there's a potential where he's not opposing her entirely, but kind of saying like, hey, leaders right now, maybe dial it back a little bit. That's a good point, Julia. And if you saw, you know, we don't get into healthcare on this, uh, you know, podcast very much. And I am by no means a healthcare uh, policy expert at all. But she did come out and say that uh, the Medicare for all, she's not going to you know, go all in on that until, um, you know, like the third year, like she's going to, you know, when she gets elected, hopefully gets elected, uh, she would start the transition, uh, to it, but you know, wouldn't be the first legislative priority to go, you know, transform, you know, the entire system to Medicare for all on day one. Well, maybe she should talk to president Obama about that too, because how do things usually work for presidents in their third year? It's that first year blow where you actually do the things you wanted to do. And then the second year where you get cleaned out in Congress and then third year where you concede that you can't do big things anymore. Or Shane, you could get some early wins, build some political momentum. And then, you know, uh, by the time third year, like you, you have, educated the public and built the movement around it where it becomes you build the sort of consensus we're talking about in public policy. So this may be evidence of a very savvy, practical approach, you know, to the situation. And maybe she was, um, you know, some of President Obama's advice, you know, was heard. It might be uh, evidence of a savvy, practical approach to getting beat by Buttigieg in Iowa. <laughs> OK, OK, OK. Time out. I think what we know here is that none of the Democratic proposals on combating climate change will go forward if there is no Democratic president, or at least that seems very unlikely. So let's turn to those proposals now in our interview with Representative Tonko. In the shadow of the impeachment hearings, House Democrats are trying to advance a climate agenda. There are several climate hearings taking place this week in Appropriations, the Armed Services Committee, the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, and in Energy and Commerce. But most notably, on Thursday, House Democrats formally introduced a bill to support their broader vision of achieving a 100% clean economy by 2050. It's a goal that's consistent with the global scientific community's consensus on the action needed to avoid the most catastrophic effects of climate change. The lead sponsor was Representative Donald McKetchen of Virginia, who was joined by several co-sponsors, including Representative Paul Tonko of New York. Tonko serves as chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Environment and Climate Change Subcommittee, where he's been holding hearings to flesh out what exactly a 100% clean economy would look like. The concept has been floating around Congress for some time, with Republicans claiming that decarbonizing the entire U.S. economy is too big and too nebulous of a goal, while some environmentalists say that the proposal does not go far enough. So, what's next? Well, we got feedback on the push for 100% moments before the legislation was introduced from Chairman Tonko himself. Up next, that interview, followed by a few final thoughts from the Political Climate co-hosts. Please note that partway through the interview, the audio changes tone due to a technical glitch, but all the information's still there, so without further ado, here's that interview. Chairman Tonko, thanks so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you on. Thank you. 
Okay, so to kick it off, as we record, we understand that House Democrats are set to unveil a sweeping climate bill that sets out a path for achieving a 100% clean economy by 2050, or 100 by 50. This goal was previewed earlier this year, um, so we're curious, now that things are a little more fleshed out, can you tell us what exactly this bill includes and how you plan to achieve this broad 100% clean goal? The bill we're talking about is the Donnie McCutcheon bill, Congressman McCutcheon bill, that states a 2050 threshold year by which to uh, incorporate the goals of 100% clean. That is a directive to the agencies, the federal agencies, to make certain that they do all within their jurisdiction and ability to respond to the climate change crisis and to offer the solutions that um, we as a nation require. What are some of those solutions? What does 100% clean really mean? Well, 100% clean is a net zero greenhouse gas emission standard. And um, while this one doesn't get into any of the specifics, it's more directed to the agencies. We, as a subcommittee on environment and climate change, recently rolled out with Chairman Pallone and with subcommittee, uh, the energy subcommittee chair, uh, Bobby Rush of uh, Illinois, we rolled out an ENC concept that um, embraces the same goal of 2050 and 100% clean at that threshold in time. There, we have had a series of uh, hearings, a very robust schedule. Uh, We've covered a lot of territory so as to offer the various perspectives concerned with this issue to have their say as to what their concerns are, uh, what the, uh, the challenges are, and what the solutions will look like. Uh, That ranges from um, a hearing on on, uh, the uh, industrial sector, uh, hearing on buildings, on environmental justice, uh, on the the power sector, and a broad sweeping hearing that looked at the whole concept of the uh, the full economy. But our approach is economy-wide. And it certainly is driven by science-based and evidence-based concepts so that um, we can be real in our attempt here. You know, it's been about 10 years, uh, Julia, since we attempted this the the last time. And with the crisis growing uh, so exponentially, we may not have another shot at this uh, where we can truly make a difference. So we do not want to fail in our attempt. We want to make certain that we reach across the aisle, that we reach across the House, so that it's bicameral, bipartisan in nature, and that we have something prepared that can uh, eventually uh, end up in the uh, on the president's desk for signature. Uh, now, while the president may have uh, denied the concept, I think it's important for us to take all of the time available by which to develop this legislation and then to have uh, this draft legislation perused by the various perspectives. One quick clarifying question. Does 100% clean mean the U.S. will no longer be using fossil fuels? 100% clean meaning no fossil fuel use? No, I think the the net zero greenhouse emission standard is what we're looking at so that, you know, we may reach to carbon sequestration uh, as an outcome. It certainly depends on, you know, what um, what the opportunities are. Um, It will be driven by science, but uh, the fact that it's a net greenhouse gas emission standard that takes us to 100% clean requires us to be innovative, to reach to um, 
opportunities, academic opportunities, research, and uh, making certain that technically there is um, an inclusion of new technology so that anything that can help us step up to that level of net zero uh, will incorporate and embrace. Hi, Mr. Chairman. This is Brandon Hurlbut. Uh, Great to meet you. Uh, Thanks so much for your extraordinary leadership on the climate crisis. Really excited about this legislation. Can you tell me a little bit about how does this fit with the Green New Deal? Is it an alternative? Is it complementary? And any comments you have about the Green New Deal brand amongst members of Congress? Right. There are a number of, of individual colleagues and clusters of colleagues that are introducing various concepts. The New Green Deal, I believe, is a a list of various principles that they would like to see incorporated, but it's complementary to the work we're doing. We have encouraged everybody to um, reach to the subcommittee on environment and climate change. And as I see it, the Green New Deal is is listing a a number of concerns and prioritizing um, the issue and expressing the urgency. It also is a force that pushes for fairness and justice to make certain all neighborhoods are not left behind, that everyone is incorporated, that all communities are reached, that there is fairness in the equation. And those are certainly things that we have embraced with the principles that we introduced, the framework of nine principles that we introduced in Baltimore early this year. And those are our evaluation guideline for any of the... uh, solutions that are presented to the subcommittee. I said, let a thousand blossoms bloom. And so I see this as very complimentary. It's about, you know, calling the Green New Deal is calling upon federal investment. It's calling upon innovation. It's calling upon um, the sort of policy that will get us to rather lofty goals. Now, we have unveiled the goal of 2050 for 100% clean, and we will incorporate those standards. Hi, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is Shane. First and foremost, just really want to thank you for your time and for, for coming on the podcast to talk about this stuff with us. Um, I wanted to take a look at the bipartisan side of this. From you know, In my time as a staffer on Capitol Hill, but also in the private sector, I've come to find that a lot of conversations behind the scenes are, are more productive maybe than it looks to, you know, uh, through the media or in the newspapers or, or one minute four speeches. And I'm curious, uh, knowing that Republicans are obviously not lined up behind any specific proposal or, or a um, you know carbon neutral by 2050, are you having any discussions uh, behind the scenes, and I'm not asking to name names, with Republicans that make you optimistic that there will be you know an opportunity to pass legislation to actually enact something that'll help address climate, uh, even if it doesn't look exactly like you know what you're rolling out today? Uh, are there, there are Republicans in the House or Senate that you think you can work with and really get things done and make some progress here? Right. No, I think that um, I think the climate, no pun intended, has changed on this one. You know, in terms of a bipartisan opportunity, I can sense this year that there is a uh, a genuine effort to come together and respond because of the uh, urgency. And also, I think basically you have an issue that has been driven by the general public. What seemed to be a focus on polar bears and coastal erosion and risk to coastal communities has now become a backyard issue for far too many. And so colleagues who are representing Nebraska um, and their record flooding or the historic rises along the Mississippi River, these are the wildfires in the Southwest. These are things that are becoming backyard wake-up calls. 
I think there's there's a good foundation from which to grow. Um, I think that Representative Shimkus, when he was chair of the Subcommittee on Environment, um, and now myself as chair, when I was ranker, we've had a great track record. And I think we have been able to work both sides of the aisle to try and develop some response. I think that's been helped by the spirit from on the issue in general across the country where the public has now engaged itself in actively uh, participating in the climate discussion. So I feel very hopeful and very much um, enthused by how things are going so far. You know, that's not to say it's going to be an easy route, but I think that if we hold these hearings and get good witnesses, you know, we had folks who came to the table who across the board, Republican um, invited and Democratic invited witnesses, where there's been tremendous agreement on getting things done. And so I think a lot of the forces are indicating that there's a reason to be hopeful. Mr. Chairman, this is Brandon again. How do you think about whether to go for short-term wins right now in this Congress that may have some Republican support, like passing the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act or bills with carbon capture sequestration, versus waiting for a more favorable political environment in 2021 and using those bills to attract Republican support to a larger, more comprehensive piece of climate legislation? Exactly. You know, we've developed that uh, mindset. Here we've seen it as a two-track approach, one which is you know, more traditional with a hope for buy-in and bipartisan support so that we can add to that carbon footprint reduction uh, by doing some immediate success stories that uh, happen now. And then a coterminous track that develops uh, some of the heftier and more difficult issues like perhaps putting a price on carbon, whatever that should look like. But, you know, we have been involved in a weatherization bill um, energy efficiency bills, conservation, even charging stations and research. I think these items are, are the uh, building blocks that can get us closer to our goal and enable us to feel some success together. And then at the same time, responds to the sense of urgency that exists out there. One of the more specific proposals that's been forward is coming through on the tax side. The House Ways and Means Committee just released a draft of a clean energy tax package. It's called the Growing Renewable Energy and Efficiency Now Act, or GREEN Act. Uh, You are a co-chair of the Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition, or SEEK, which for our listeners, SEEK led an effort to have the Ways and Means Committee include some key energy uh, tax credits in the bill. And I know you received a lot of backing uh, from, I believe, 166 members, including from the New Democrat Coalition and the Progressive Caucus. What exactly are those tax measures that you're pushing for? Well, you know, we had uh, worked with Chairman Neal, and as you indicated, uh, had a letter that advocated for sound tax policy that will get us to our goals. I think it's one of those cornerstone pieces, again, that need to be, um, be part of our process. I was happy to help lead that fight through SEEK, and we did gain other efforts uh, in in other supporters in the process. I think included in the package are a number of great elements. There's tax extenders that obviously will, rather than ratchet down the tax incentive commitment, uh, we'll extend uh, for the investment tax credits for another five years. In So that's for wind and solar extensions? Yeah, I think that you know, we need to include battery investments so that we're seen as 
one and the same. Some of the electric vehicle uh, caps that need to be addressed. So these are policies that I think can really, you know, provide for a steadiness in the process and, and an enhancement in the process that uh, can be done um, in a package that is introduced by Richie Neal and the Ways and Means Committee. Hi, Congressman. Uh, Shane again. I wanted to follow up specifically on the tax side of this. Um, when I first saw the bill come out of Ways and Means, I was excited because I've long thought that energy storage should be eligible for the ITC. I'm a fan of the ITC generally for renewable energy production, but then I noticed there are some university-related environmental justice provisions. It's not, it's not 100% clear to me, you know, first of all, what that does, and then second of all, whether or not adding new elements like that that really haven't been discussed before are going to be a poison pill for Republicans when you're negotiating, you know, across the aisle, but also bicamerally. Well, if we include some additional elements in the tax bill, universities, or um, environmental justice. I think that, you know, that kind of response to our framework, uh, which includes research and innovation, it includes making certain no communities continue to be unjustly treated so that environmental justice becomes another cornerstone. We want to be true to that litmus test, that evaluation exercise that was unveiled uh, by our, our framework of principles. And so when we're reaching to the um, Ways and Means Committee, you know, they're knowing of our principles and they're wanting to make certain that, you know, from an environmental perspective, from an economic development perspective, and certainly from an energy perspective, the jurisdiction that befalls our committee is a addressed from a multifaceted, in a multifaceted way. So you... Do you think that some Senate Republicans in a conference committee would, would get behind those provisions? Or do you think it would be you know, more productive to, to move forward with just the traditional extenders? Well, you know, there can always be resistance in the other house or by, you know, uh, there might be a political divide over it. But I think, again, we're trying to offer the optimum incentives that we think stay uh, true to uh, our document that guides us. I, I think that, you know, when we heard from uh, panelists at our environmental justice hearing uh, just recently, just this week, I think that um, it was very clear that many communities have endured uh, some very difficult um, uh, health outcomes and injustices. And I think that this is an appropriate time to include that as we as we revamp our policy, as we put a focus on greening up, and um, and really, you know, policy can set that tone. And um, we're hopeful again that uh, as we negotiate, that there will be compromise, and that you know we're stating our values clearly in the legislation that we advance. So, so Shane asked there about sort of getting Republicans on board and actually getting something passed. With respect to this 100 by 50 proposal, I understand you're still building support even within the Democratic Party. According to some reporting, uh, Florida Representative Kathy Castor, who heads the Climate Crisis Committee, uh, was tempted to sign but has not yet signed on to that proposal. So how do you plan to build support for this bill exactly? Oh, we're in constant communication with groups like uh, Representative Casters. I mean, the select committee is something that we meet with, we update each other. Um, we're, you know, working in a very uh, uh, coordinated and collaborated way. I think that with the, uh, the 2050 threshold year, 
it very well could be that Representative Castor perhaps is just keeping an open mind on, on you know, where they'll be before they get there. I don't know uh, if they've taken a stand, but I think, again, her select committee is looking at all committee activities, which spans over several committees, and, and formulating their recommendations as we speak. Mr. Chairman, my last question. Um, we have a variety of listeners to our show, many different stakeholders in the energy and environment uh, community. What would you say to them? What can they do on the outside to help you get this legislation passed? The near-term stuff, the broad stuff you're thinking about for the future, what can they do on the outside? Oh, I think people just need to, if they're very much embracing the climate crisis, I think they need to storytell. I think they need to feed the process uh, with anecdotal evidence of where there is hurt and consequence and pain. Uh, the farming community, for one. Uh, I witnessed what happen- happened in the rural portions that I represent when we were impacted with, with record flooding uh, in rapid succession. You know, it puts a 100 or 500 year storm rhetoric, um, uh, it pushes it out the window. It's no longer accurate. And in the one given storm situation, it happened in the very latest days of August. So all the investment, all the hard work, all the revenue collection as you harvest and, and really reap the benefits of that hard work were lost, um, along with buildings and cattle, livestock and, and homes. I mean, these are the stories that motivate and inspire all of us as policymakers, and it does express in, in real-life measure the sense of urgency that is demanded uh, of us in the in the thinking that we're doing. So I think people calculating it from the economics as a perspective, from energy as a perspective, environment as a perspective, agriculture, all the different components. You know, everyone is going to, as a sector, need to provide or contribute to the footprint, carbon footprint reduction, uh, if we're going to meet this very robust goal. And I think that, um, again, from what I've seen from 10 years ago, there are so many changes, so many uh, expressions of can do. Um, The price of renewables, for instance, far beyond what was projected, uh, far beyond beneficial. A stronger economy that, you know, had us back from uh, March of 09 as the lowest point with all sorts of investments over the years to get to a stronger economy. And, you know, just the technology that has developed. I think a lot of Americans would be um, heartened to know that there's work still going on beyond, you know, impeachment proceedings and that there's governing getting done. Let me tell you, we have had so many hearings just with the subcommittee. Then all of the subcommittees, five or six in number, five in number, uh, in the Energy and Commerce Committee, we're producing a lot of uh, legislation and getting a lot of the... um, getting a lot of legislation passed. I think there's something like 275 bills that have passed the, the, the House and are now over to the Senate. So, you know, there is a lot going on beyond uh, the impeachment inquiries that, that have uh, begun. And I think that, you know, people need to know that and they also need to in, contribute their story, their, their concern, their, their pain that they've absorbed because of climate change. And again, we're doing this, yes, for the moment, but it's the generations that will follow us. 
And so, again, doing it for our children, our grandchildren, doing it because of uh, uh, the assignment of stewardship of the environment uh, that is, I think, part of our dictate, uh, especially if you embrace a faith of any type, I think it's there as, a, uh, as an assignment for any of us. So, so finally, you know, we've talked about uh, these uh, tax extenders that are in the Ways and Means Committee bill. We've talked about this 100 by 50 proposal, which I understand is still gathering support and will be introduced imminently. Um, and then I know you've talked about a f- that being a framework for even more comprehensive legislation, tackling a full universe of economy-wide emissions. Can you just finish by telling us what your, your grander vision is here and where you ultimately want to go and how that happens in this partisan moment? Well, I think, you know, within our jurisdictional framework as a energy and commerce committee where we can deal with the environment, we can deal with the energy policy, we can, um, you know, advise other groups to um, perhaps look at their committee assignments or uh, committee jurisdictions. Uh, basically, we want to introduce efforts to reduce the, the carbon that's, that's uh, polluting our atmosphere. Um, however, we can do that. It may be charging stations and the electrification of the transportation sector. It may be, um, you know, uh, research that gets us to new innovation. It certainly can be retrofitting buildings with efficiency standards. Uh, it can be the power sector with additional contribution. Uh, certainly, it's anything beyond automobiles, looking at some of the heavier fleets and innovation as it relates to fuels that are developed, elements in, in uh, cover crops in, in agriculture, you know, returning carbon into the soil where it belongs, uh, carbon capture of any type, and certainly a grid modernization. We're looking at any and all solutions related to our committee. Fantastic. Chairman Tonko, thank you so much for your time. We'd love to have you back on uh, any time yeah, in the future. Come back anytime <laughs> thank and talk you to so us. much, Congressman. We r- really appreciate your time. Yeah. Well, it's been my pleasure. Have a great day, everybody. You have a too. great day. Bye-bye. So it's always helpful to hear directly from a decision maker to get a sense of where their head's at. And in this interview, it was interesting to hear Chairman Tonko be quite optimistic about the 100 by 50 bill, uh, thinking that it would gain traction both within his party, the Democratic Party, and possibly eventually from Republicans across the aisle. So I'm just curious, Shane, where's your head on this right now? I have questioned on this show many times, I will question many more times, how it is even remotely possible. In fact, I was looking at uh, some of my old commentary last night just to prepare for this show, and I think I've said several times it's just not possible. I've been criticized for it, so I'm very What's interested. Not possible? The goal of zero emissions by 2050. Net zero emissions by 2050, economy wide, in my view, is not possible. But what I have said is, if you disagree with me, prove me wrong. Lay out some policies that can do it. So now. Uh, apparently Democrats are going to put their money where their mouth is and unveil a bill. I'm excited to see the bill. I'm excited to hear what they think that economy looks like. Another thing we discussed in the interview was the House Ways and Means Committee's draft legislation that would extend federal tax credits for wind and solar. Uh, These tax credits were scheduled to expire or step down in the coming years. The draft, note it's still a draft, uh, also includes incentives for energy storage and electric vehicles. It also includes incentives for green workforce development and environmental justice through tax credits for research and academic programs. So I'm curious, Shane, do you support those tax extenders? 
So when we talked yesterday and we were preparing for this, I thought I did, and now I'm frustrated again. So what I really support is something that, that I've been interested in a long time is not just extending the ITC, but making storage eligible for the ITC. Just so our listeners know, under current law, uh, storage is only eligible if it's powered 70% by renewable. Now, as everyone knows, I'm a fan of renewables, but I also understand that storage has climate benefits outside of that because even peak shaving can help you know, reduce the need for peaker plants that are typically some of the dirtier plants um, out there. So I'm a big supporter of that. When I saw the environmental justice stuff, and yes, I know I'm going to get Twitter hate right now, but anyone who's actually worked in this space knows how difficult these tax, tax extenders are. The reason they ultimately get done is because they are truly bipartisan. I'm not even saying they're awful ideas. I'm just saying that anyone who's actually had to work on an extenders package understands how difficult this is, but how bipartisan it is and how it's it's so narrowly focused that it just happens to work but every I'm time. I'm curious, Shane, you worked on the Hill. You know how these things get done. People introduce things all the time. So being totally brutal about it. What ultimately ends up passing is usually a cherry-picked selection not of language. Not at all language. when it comes to extenders. Never. Not at all. Not it at gets all. usually worked into like an omnibus bill, and the, there's things the tacked on that come in fits and starts. The package can work on to another bill, but the extenders package is always clean. It's always led by uh, Chuck Grassley, Senate Republican from Iowa, and you know any number of House Democrats. House Republicans you know, always go along with it because at the end of the day, there's a lot of incentives in their districts, as we've talked about before. There's solar and wind and a lot of Republican states. I mean, I'm telling you that there's not a lot of things that I know for certain, but I've worked on these tax extender bills and everyone agrees they should be clean. That's why they work. So do you support, Shane, extending the um, the the tax credits for solar and wind? Absolutely. And, and I always have. And, and I think the one difficulty we're going to see there, and this is another reason I hate extraneous issues, is the last extension, the agreement was we should all agree to do this because we're never going to have to do it again. So let's trade. I can't remember what they traded last year. I don't remember if it was oil exports yeah, or it was. Yeah. it was something lifting like the oil, that. Lifting the oil export ban. And the idea was let's extend it you know, far past what we said we were going to do because it's going to be the last one. So I personally favor uh, extending them, but I do know it's going to be a slightly rockier road because of that agreement from last time. And so adding new extraneous issues is just the wrong idea. And this kind of stuff, we talked about this with the NDAA and carbon capture last week. It's just enough. Like, why do you have to poison pill everything that can possibly get done? A lot of people would not say this is a poison pill, but a much needed program that maybe everyone could get behind. Are people who don't understand how Congress works, but people who have worked on extenders know that there is there are poison pills and there are tax extenders. And, and well, I guess it's very just, different. You're saying the Republicans are on the record saying environmental justice programs, universities then are just a poison pill. I'm on the record saying that anything other than a tax extender and a tax extender's package is a poison pill. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's border wall, environmental justice, or health programs, anything other than an energy tax extender. Jay, maybe you can help me understand Chairman Grassley's comments because he's you know very key to this because he runs the Senate Finance Committee. So he said we should not extend for solar and wind because these are mature industries, but yet we have $20 billion in subsidies for fossil fuels, which are very mature industries. How do you square that? I mean, I, I don't I don't square it. I, I do think that I think we've talked about this in the past and I'm not defending these, but the fossil fuel subsidies, quote unquote, I've had to dig through all those. Some of them are subsidies, right? Like straight up. Uh, some of them are deductions that are any, any sort of technology even outside of energy are eligible for. So that $20 billion number doesn't work for me. But I, but I don't disagree with your premise. The premise is if you, you either subsidize energy or you don't. And if you do, then you should make sure that you're subsidizing both you know, equally across the board, but also maybe more so the ones that you're trying to, to get from you know, lower levels of commercialization to higher levels of commercialization. If you say we're not going to subsidize anything, I can live with that too. It's not my preference, but I, I don't square it. I don't think it makes sense. 
Well, we're in the final stretch of the legislative session and Congress still has a lot to do. They have to pass a long-term spending bill to avoid another government shutdown. Not to mention, there's still an impeachment inquiry underway. So we'll see if and when these climate and energy bills come up. And we'll end our show on that note. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our producer, Victoria Simon. And don't forget to tune in next week for our special Thanksgiving episode. Have a great week. Until soon. As the investigations in the 2020 election hogged the news spotlight, many Americans may be wondering what, if any, poli- may be wondering if any policy making, what? Hog spotlight. Hog. This is a funny word. Yeah, hog. 30 to, 30 to 50 feral hogs. I'll redo this anyway. Steal the is news. They're bogarting the news, the news cycle. Hog the spotlight. Isn't that a phrase? Okay. Yeah, as it's the inv- a phrase. 